Thank you, Derek, for your introduction. It's great to be here at uh, Covenant again to enjoy uh, an opportunity to give a lecture. But what I really enjoy more than lectures is having conversations with people. <clears throat> so that's what we'll do here. I still have some things to say, and I'm on mic, so I'll, I'll give a lecture, but it's going to be aimed at opening up a conversation. <clears throat> My wife often says I don't stop soon enough. Uh, the fact that it's a small group will encourage me to stop uh, sooner maybe than usual, uh, given all the things that might unfold. Uh, I was born in Colorado when my parents were doing uh, home mission work out there, <clears throat> and my dad was uh, in uh, lots of settings. He was a visiting pastor here and there, different churches. He was doing this or that, and uh, I remember as a child, it may have happened more than once, but him coming back on a Sunday after he'd uh, been preaching and my mom asking something about how did it go or whatever, and he said, well, it was a very small, a very small group at the church. He said, I think there were three, but he said, you know, I convinced myself again. <laughs> so it, it doesn't matter the size, the size of the audience if you got uh, working with. Uh, I wanted to uh, address this question of institutions and piety, that is uh, how we operate in uh, uh, our world today. And I've uh, subtitled our Kuyperian Challenge because in many ways, if you've read the biography of Kuyper, James Bratt wrote, or if you know anything about him, he had a very interesting early life where he was raised in what we would call the kind of liberal formalizing uh, tradition of the Hervormkerk in the Netherlands. And, uh, you know, became a master theologian, etc., through his studies, and studied many, many other things besides. Uh, back in the day, that day, I guess, pro forma, and without difficulty, wrote his dissertation in Latin. I mean, I, this is beyond my fathoming, these kind of things. But uh, he later, in some of his uh, early essays, became a very serious critic of modernism uh, as he was deepening uh, his uh, worldview, his understanding, biblical and otherwise. And in one essay uh, presented this kind of, uh, you know, a mirage. Uh, it leads, it opens, it builds deeply on uh, kind of Christian anticipations of, you know, the oasis just ahead, uh, kingdom of peace on earth, etc. coming, but it's, it's, it's a mirage. And he became a serious critic of modernism in that sense of a false uh, falsification of, of a Christian tradition. And he was very influenced. I had no idea about this until I read the biography. He became very influenced by even some American evangelical um, kind of almost tent meeting sort of uh, revivalism. And became, uh, went to one of the big meetings. Uh, there's a name for some of this and some of it you would know, some of the groups in the US. A uh, big uh, meeting in London, I think it was, that he attended. And because he was, and this was part of the dimension of him, he, he was, he was looking for piety, he was looking for warmth, he was looking for vitality. And that wasn't there in the church. He, you know, he, was, he was an intellect, but he, he was a man of many, many dimensions and many passions. And uh, <clears throat> part of the consequence of that was, uh, and he became a critic of that too. He, became, he could see the, the uh, shallowness of much of it. And again, some of its uh, attempt to make out of a uh, pious relationship with uh, Jesus uh, something that itself didn't didn't go very far, but um, 
uh, he, he, he was open in many, many directions. And one of the consequences of that was that he, uh, he wrote uh, devotional, he published a number of devotional books, and part of it was that this church newspaper, which he edited, which was a weekly, he also edited uh, the one that Derek mentioned this morning, the, the Standard, which was a daily. Of course, it's hard to imagine anybody editing a paper. These are smaller operations, and he had a staff. But, uh, you know, he, he wrote editorials, uh, a number of his books, uh, are compilations of these things that unfolded chapter by chapter. Each, each of them had been published in, uh, in the newspaper. So he wrote after a big trip to the Middle East, he wrote on Islam and the Mediterranean in, you know, weeks. And that became a, a major book. It has not yet been, well, it might be under a translation now. Uh, and then he wrote these uh, little devotionals in the, the church paper, and that became a number of these. A very, very uh, pious person who saw Christianity through the lens of all that was developing in what we would call a modern differentiated society. Uh, Max Stackhouse, who was a uh, real historian of, um, of uh, social development and Christian ethics, uh, ended up at uh, Princeton Seminary for a number of years. Uh, he told me as I got to know him, he became a big fan of Kuiper. Um, later in life introduced to him, but he said, you know, the most, the two most significant and the only really significant addresses to a modern differentiated society from a Christian point of view is Catholic social teaching in Kuiper. Uh, you just can't find a systematic attempt to try to understand what it means to live in God's world in its full developing complexity, except in those two traditions. Uh, Kuiper, when he gave his address uh, at the first Christian Social Congress in, uh, uh, I think it was uh, 19, let's see, is Kuiper, 1898 were the, were the uh, Stone Lectures. I think it was early 1890s that this first uh, Social Congress was organized. He was chief organizer, but uh, he just was on every front trying to get people to see this. And he admitted in that lecture, we. It was published in one version. Uh, we brought it out uh, it, so that it got published that 100 years after that as the problem of poverty. It's now being retranslated probably by some really good translators who with all the footnotes that we didn't deal with, I think that's going to be in this big series of Kuiper stuff that's coming out. But he said there, you know, uh, this was just after Pope Leo XIII had brought out his, uh, uh, his uh, encyclical on uh, labor and all kinds of other things related to basically the social question. That's what they called it then. The social question was everything coming from the Industrial Revolution and uh, what it did to cities and what it was doing to men. It just changed, you know, quickly. Within a few decades, it was changing the order of society. And he said, the Catholics are ahead of us. We've got to address these things. And he, he put a shot at it. So. Um, he was a man of, of uh, he was intensely interested in trying to understand that. So I look at us today, it seems to me, and this is where I wish there were a lot of students here to hear it, but you pass it on to them. Uh, I don't know of a time that's more crucial for students to be studying uh, at a Christian college to get a worldview than our day where Almost every institution is either dissolving or under attack or being rejected or ignored. And some of them quite forcefully, some of them take a long period of time 
Some of them come, uh, let's say, in the Catholic Church in the United States a lot in part because of uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, abuse of, of uh, boys and stuff in, in the church and all that they have endured because of that. Uh, some of it has to do with just things changing. Some of it has to do with the, the culture and the climate. Uh, many, many, you see these things, you probably have statistics that <clears throat> are up to date on the number of people don't go to church anymore. The church just seems irrelevant to what they see themselves doing, and many of them want to have a nice walk with God. I mean, it's not that it's a, a necessarily rebellion against Christianity. Uh, so it looks like institutions don't matter, and yet it's un hard to imagine that anybody can live in a complex society without them. And what it means is one institution or another may fill the gap. Now, some of them do it. I can remember in uh, my days growing up, uh, the first bank in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania was always the first bank, and it was always there, and it was run by whoever set up the first bank. Well, it's since been bought out by about four banks. I don't know how many. <clears throat> we found a PNC bank in... Uh, Birmingham, which we were glad we could just uh, keep our account for because the Annapolis Bank and Trust that had been there for 20 years that we lived there, bought out by PNC. So <clears throat> uh, some of it still banks, but the structures change and everything's quite changed and uh, that goes on. Churches come and go. Uh, they are, I, I don't want to discuss these, spend my time in detail, but you, you get the picture. And uh, so this is going to be a time in which we either go, if you have a radical imagination of destruction, something like the end of the Roman Empire and uh, in the time when the institutions dissolved, and then pretty soon you're into the uh, you know, uh, era of uh, yeah, feudalism and having to start from scratch to build institutions. I know a number of people, including a niece and her husband and others who are into this, look, we've got to build local. It's not, they're not of the same spirit as the, the new book by uh, uh, the Benedict Option, what's his name, Dreher. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I've read a number of reviews and had some interaction with people online, read a number of comments. Uh, it's not quite the Benedict Option, but you can see that, uh, and homeschooling was a reflection of that, dissatisfaction, distrust of the public schools, uh, wanting to be able to count on this relation of parents to children, and you're not ready to trust the education authorities to take them on. Uh, it's kind of a, more of a familial thing. And some of these, uh, some of the nieces, and I fully respect it. I mean, depending on where you are, that may be the best option, particularly if you can give them a good education for a number of years. But uh, they're going to do more of their own gardening. They're going to cooperate with friends in doing what is kind of a, a simple life. It doesn't give up complexity. And for the most part, they still are going to work in various businesses, institutions around. Uh, the one niece's husband is a, uh, uh, well, a uh, artist that works for, helps to design websites and other things. He's, he's quite good. And so a lot of it is what he does on his own in his own house. But it's, he's employed by and gets these things with different companies. So whether you think of it as just the, uh, the uh, simplification of many of the operations, which can be done because of technology that major corporations may still have something to do with, <clears throat> uh, that institutional uh, network is fragmentary. And of course, it's going to be rebuilt, or it's going to collapse further before there's rebuilding. 
but the meaning of our human communal character. That's what I want to get at. The meaning of us having vocations that have to do with the development of the earth, that from a biblical point of view, this is multi-generational. <clears throat> it's come to me ever more fully in the last number of years, and I'm working on a book now on biblical interpretation. But the image of God created, mentioned in Genesis 1, uh, to fill the earth, but it goes on. This is a multi-generational creature. It's in the many generations that the human being and the meaning of the image of God unfolds itself. <clears throat> it's not that you're, you have an isolated image of God and he has an image of God and as if uh, each one of us has our own little image of God. We are very much real persons. <clears throat> God really walks and talks and wants to deal with each of us very personally. I'm not staying away from any personalism. And I want to re-emphasize this, this validity of wanting to be, whether it's like praying Davidic Psalms, which David was doing quite personally, <clears throat> our piety before God. <clears throat> but our callings, when you think of the unfolding of the generations, the overtime of the accumulation of wisdom, uh, it dawned on me one time, uh, my wife and I love classical music, and I just started thinking, you know, there was a day before Bach existed. There was a day before the modern orchestra existed. There was a day before there were saxophones. There's a day before there were French horns. There's a day before any of that happened. Then you listen to some of those medieval chants. That was music. That was the beginning of many kinds of musical development. And then the organ. You know, somebody invents a magnificent organ. You, we don't start from scratch. At least we don't have to, and we shouldn't. Uh, these things unfold and they accumulate. So we are the bearers of huge accumulations of traditions and the development of cultures and societies. The big challenge, of course, is that with all of the development, we carry with us the sins of the father to the third and fourth generations. Uh, we can't be conservative or progressive without having a discernment of the norms by which we judge what to conserve and what to go further with. Because if you say, well, we're conservatives, we have to conserve everything. Well, so you want to conserve all of the sinful junk that we've destroyed in this uh, society, by, which by God's grace he's held up. And you want to progress, in some cases, beyond the very good things you ought to be conserving. <clears throat> so the question is normativity. And that was again and again, uh, you just look at those biblical texts of God trying to get Israel to see <clears throat> how they have to have no other God, but they have to keep going forward and all of this development, and the question is how to learn how to discern it. Uh, I think Kuiper is really significant for this day in that sense, and one of the things I like most about Kuiper, why I'm so deeply indebted, and then philosophically, because I was a student of philosophy before I got interested in politics, and I'm mainly a political philosopher, but uh, the development of that uh, philosophy from, from Doiberg uh, to the great thing, greatest thing I think about what they were doing is the way they were going at it. They're not the kind of people that you just kind of freeze as a, an orthodoxy and then quote them like it's a uh, dogmatics and then you turn it into a catechesis uh, for training. That's not the kind of thing. It was a way, uh, and, and some people just get bored, even if they can read Doiverd, I mean bored trying to f fork through it when I first started reading. I wanted to find a conclusion. What do you really want to say? 
And you gotta go through page after page after page of his assessing and arguing with everything about John Locke or whoever he's dealing with. Uh, I wasn't interested in that, but eventually begin to see that's the only way you can begin to work toward clarity if you start with certain assumptions and you're trying to evaluate your own Christian tradition. The medieval, modern Protestant, modern Christian tradition is still steeped deeply in Greco-Roman, Gnostic, Stoic, uh, dogmatics of, of all kinds of things uh, that has either, whether it's uh, absolutized uh, reason itself as the guide through which we will then find our way or whether it's done something else. And for many people, that's the great Western tradition. Well, indeed, we'd better study it and understand it deeply because that shaped us. But simply to absorb it and carry it forward. I mean, one of the reasons that the medieval Christendom uh, collapsed was because it was such an amalgam. <laughs> uh, it just couldn't finally be held together because many of the parts going here and there couldn't be contained under the, uh, the idea of, uh, of uh, church-led uh, civilization with a kind of Roman imperial order to it. All of this is to say that when Kuiper in his time comes to grips with what he and Grunven Prinster before him is, had seen as uh, the great significance of the Reformation and its development in the Netherlands, and they in their time are asking, what's the fix we're in? Uh, cold, declining orthodoxy in the church, uh, many pious people out in the rural areas, that typically is in most of these countries, and they're struggling to go forward. What do we do? Uh, how do we come to grips with that? And then the Industrial Revolution. Kuiper had started out, you know, the political party he helped to organize, the Grunven Prinster kind of started. It was really the first major organized political party in Europe, and certainly the first Christian Democratic uh, party. He called it the Anti-Revolutionary Party because his primary aim was this <coughs> individualism and human autonomy claim of the French Revolution. But before he got very far, it was the socialists. It was the social question which uh, had to come to grips with. And uh, because of what he did, I would say politically, it fostered uh, a similar effort in the Catholic uh, circles. And uh, Kuiper and the Catholic People's Party uh, had shared many uh, coalition governments and they both argued strenuously, theologically and otherwise, and then they had a beer afterwards and uh, asked where do we go from here, and they knew they were gonna be struggling with the liberals here, though sympathetic to much, struggling with the Labor Party here, sympathetic to much, but it has to be done right. And it was communal. Uh, these were organized institutions. That's what I wanna emphasize. Uh, I remember, uh, uh, this is really how I came to uh, uh, Kuiper. When I went to Wheaton College, <clears throat> um, uh, I had grown up in a family that was uh, very world and life view Christianity. That was the kind of uh, thank you, person my father was. But he didn't catechize us. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a catechetical thing. It was just the way he directed it. Sunday wasn't in that sense a radically different day for us in the sense, oh, we gotta, we're dealing with God today. Or, you know, today we got to be on our merits or time to go to church and be pious and then you can start cussing again on Monday. I never heard a cuss word any day from, from them. But in that context, when I went to Wheaton, uh, I struggled for the first time or became conscious of the extent to which this sacred-secular dualism operated. Uh, and 
that didn't make sense to me. So I, I had to come to grips with, look, Christ is either Lord of all of life or isn't. And if he isn't, then that's the end of Christianity uh, for me because that's not what it says. And if he is, my goodness, what does that mean? And my first action, my first movement in trying to deal with it is the thing that I think has, has captured pietistic evangelicalism and in many ways many, many in the Reformed tradition for whom then church life, I'm speaking now in the sense of congregational activity, uh, theology, catechism is the center of what Christianity means, that I tried to intensify the personal. If Christ is Lord of all of life, then I want to help organize Bible studies wherever I work, or I want to get a prayer group going. Nothing wrong with that. But to take what I would call the pious actions that relate to what the community does, and then just do a little of it alongside at the business or in the scientific laboratory, didn't quite get at it. And I was struggling with these questions. I majored in philosophy, not because I wanted to be a philosopher. In fact, I had no idea who Socrates or Plato or any of these guys were. Uh, but I wanted to ask the questions. And I got A's in the first course I took. And I was doing B plus in physics. because I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I said, gee, I think the Lord's opening a way for me here. <laughs> but in asking those questions, here my father, one of the reasons he had the view he did is that somebody had given him Kuiper Stone lectures way back. He had it in the shelf. I don't ever remember to mention it. He said, well, you better read this if you're going to get on in that path. Well, I did. And years later, when I went back, I thought, how in the world can that old formal English and some of its heaviness and some of its uh, didn't do a thing for me later. In reading that, all of these lights went off. I mean, it's, that's when the fundamental change for me came from a man-centered universe to a God-centered universe. All of this is about God and what he's doing, not about me and how God fits into my life. How is God catching me up? That, it just, it was a big picture kind of change. And from then, then I wanted to pursue it. But the big thing about Kuiper, see, is he be, at, at that point for me, is he began to open up uh, the meaning of creatureliness. It's not taking piety to something that's just out there, whether you call it secular or not. This is God's creation. Uh, business and government and art and science these are realities in which we have to engage. But if you just add piety, you don't get the meaning of any of those. Those things have to do with the tasks we've been given, of who we were made to be as creatures in the image of God. You have to get back to creation. Uh, since then, the way I've tried to put it, I'm not sure I was thinking like this then, but <clears throat> uh, in large measure, and I think this especially happens to Christians, and this is part of my basis for uh, the argument I'm making about the time in which we live. Uh, for Christians, the focus of the story is the cross and the resurrection and salvation for eternal life. Evangelism for eternal life. Uh, Jesus died for my sins. And trust him and you'll have eternal life. Jesus is the Savior. And who are humans? We're the sinners that need saved. And the Reformed tradition, the emphasis on the sinfulness of our humanity can be extremely great, as it should be, insofar as we turn away from God, darkness is everywhere. So there's the story. We're sinners, and Christ is the Savior. But all you have to do is read the New Testament and see that's not the story. 
That's an excerpt from the story. How is the incarnate Son of God introduced by John's Gospel, the beginning of Colossians, the beginning of Hebrews, as the one in and through whom all things were created? The Alpha, from, from Revelation point of view, the Alpha and not just the Omega. He's not first the Savior. The one who comes to save is the one in and through whom everything hangs together. Why in the world did God create in the first place? Just so he could have some sinners to save? You know, it seems a little screwy. I mean, if I say that, it's just, it's a backwards kind of story. So much so it seems backwards that uh, Bart and uh, his theology, and I'm, I'm still struggling through, I never did it systematically before, <clears throat> He has to get somehow this uh, centrality of Christ, but he only has him as the Savior. So then he has to have the purpose of salvation and Christ before creation in order to have creation be in Christ who's the Savior. So it's, it's an odd thing. I won't get into Bart now, but I mean, I, I'm not surprised how that came about, him and his own kind of European Reformed, uh, very Lutheran kind of context. But. <clears throat> And what does the Bible say about humanity? That we are fundamentally sinners, that that's our identity until we meet Christ. No, we are created in the image of God. We are creatures made in the image of God. The beginning of is all things are created in the one who has made us. And I mean, you just read Genesis 1, Psalm 8, and Hebrews 2. Uh, and you, you get the picture there. The Alpha and the Omega in the end of Revelation, the beginning and the end, who is Jesus. Uh, there's an end to a story which is God creating so that he might reveal his glory. And through the unfolding of the covenantal traditions of all the human generations, it's to come to a grand finale, uh, the glory of which is unimaginable unless we fathom that everything that humans have been given to do is in its multifold color revealing dimensions of who God is. In other words, put it this way, the grand finale is going to be a great banquet. That entails all the cuisine of all of history, all the great wines, every other kind of thing imaginable is going into the feast. It's going to be a marriage, a marriage. Every loving marriage, every dimension of love in any marriage is anticipatory of the great marriage. This is real stuff that we're doing here. Forget the stuff about are we saving ourselves. It has nothing to do with that. The Reformation is sound. We don't save ourselves. Our works don't save us. But those who have been saved by God, Israel out of Egypt, and us in Christ Jesus in that, those who have been saved are, can't but give glory and thanks to God with all of their life, with all their gifts. So what do you do? You bring your thank offerings into the uh, tabernacle uh, on Sabbath. You bring the kings of the earth are going to bring all the glories in, into the kingdom. They're offered up and they will be received, uh, the, the good gifts, the things that come through uh, the fire. So what we're doing, so think of it this way and go on from there. Uh, it's going to be a great family. It's going to be a family reunion like uh, one couldn't anticipate. It's going to be a great uh, a seminar that's going to go on forever and ever. <laughs> Jesus the rabbi, right? Teaching those who follow. That's one of our identities of Jesus, the teacher. The one who's going to, there's no end to the exploration. 
and boy, are we going to have fun being students. Uh, but we're beginning now. See, it's not like what we do now is just some secular thing using our minds to keep us from, from uh, falling asleep, and then, oh, then we're going to have something. It's going to be the fulfillment. It's going to be the fulfillment of, of uh, creation in, in the glory. And of course, uh, for many people, and this goes back to this whole Augustinian idea of uh, government given only because of sin, and therefore it's hard to get an idea of calling in the political realm and all the rest of it. <clears throat> uh, my best way of saying simply uh, to a group trying to counter that is, if government and the meaning of political life is given only because of sin, then what we should see in that grand picture that begins to show up in Isaiah and in Revelation is the great banquet feast, the great wedding, the great ingathering of the family, the great educational venture, uh, everything, the music. I mean, uh, the concerts are going to be beyond belief. Uh, and that's what it's going to be. There will be no government. There will be no city. There will be no kingdom because that doesn't, we don't need that anymore. That's gone. Sin's gone. Christ has put that under his feet. But now what do we read in Revelation? The New Jerusalem, the great city, uh, built squarely with Christ ruling and us ruling with him. Uh, in fact, one of the most odd, if you just read this out of somebody's poetry and had no biblical background, one of the oddest uh, mixed metaphors uh, in its beauty in Revelation is the great city Jerusalem coming down as a bride dressed for her bridegroom mixing marriage and governing. Now, you think of anything more personal, more intimate, more uh, lending itself to uh, the image of Christ loving his bride, it's marriage. And if, in our terms, you think of anything more abstract, far off, impersonal, uh, government governing a city. And yet, these can be used as a mixed metaphor. But there are many of those, if you think through it. These all have their own meaning. But David, the great king, is like a shepherd, the shepherd king. I'm not going to take time. You think about it. Dream up, remember up, go back to the Bible, look for all the mixed metaphors that can be there because they're all revelatory. And many of them can slide in and out of one another. Uh, for you to teach your students well is to love them. You love them by teaching them well. That's the way love expresses itself in education. For a king to do right by the people and to lead them in doing justice, this is the great Psalm 1 and 2 in relationship to Deuteronomy that uh, opens up the Psalms. For the king to lead a people who they will be righteous and follow the law is a love fest, and they become the community of God's love. Well, you have to, the only way they work is that each has its own meaning. It's not that marriage dissolves into a Jerusalem, or Jerusalem is just dissolves into the meaning of marriage. They're all that diversity. Now, if you keep that in mind, then, the institutions that we have, that we've built, the communal ventures that over the generations have developed, we need to look at and think about very critically as to how well are we imaging how well does our city look like the kind of city of God that we're anticipating? How well does my marriage, does my family, does my teaching, does my scientific work look like the kind of thing that would be an honor and a delight to continue on in the great uh, kingdom when it comes? 
we can't know everything about what that's going to be. The transfiguration that comes with resurrection we cannot imagine. I remember as a kid when I first heard a sermon probably about the streets paved with gold, I wanted my parents to tell me how thick it was going to be. You know, as soon as you take one of those images and you, you, it, does, it just disappears. Well, they weren't quite sure how thick it would be, but it would be plenty thick, they assured me. <laughs> but the, the metaphor, what it opens up, this is kind of what I'm getting at, there's a long tradition of theological thought of theology via the negativa. Uh, God is omniscient. He's, he's not limited in knowledge. God is all-powerful. And what comes will be uh, beyond. It will be not what we now have. My wife was worried, thankfully she was worried, and that meant she loved me enough about uh, there won't be marriage in heaven, so she'll lose something. And uh, I said, well, think of all the things about me that you won't mind losing, <laughs> but no, that wasn't the point. But you see, it's, it's not this. So if it's not, then it's a negation. But it seems to me you read again and again, even about marriage, it's going to be the fulfillment of marriage. We're going to be more fully married in the full meaning of having become the bride of Christ. And it's not going to do away with the reality of what God made us to be. It's going to be a transfiguration. And it's a new heaven and new earth. It's going to be a very earthy thing. How that's going to happen, what it's going to mean, don't speculate. Let that up to uh, God uh, to reveal uh, when the kingdom comes and resurrection occurs. It just seems to me that if students, if people in the pews could see that every moment of their life matters, that this is revelatory stuff, the excitement, uh, rather than the drudgery. Now, I know there's drudgery through life, and it has not only to do with sin, but it has to do with our outlook on stuff, and a lot of it has to do with sin. There are things in every job I've had, mostly teaching in the center, that you know, would bore me to tears, or you just get tired of it, and you wish it wasn't there. There are things that happen in a marriage that bring about sourness and, and complaint, and then we realize how foolish we've been or whatever. There are things that uh, our kids riding to church and coming back after church, would. Uh, we had 40-minute drives, so there was a long time for a captured audience, and I misused it sometimes. And Our kids in the back seat said, Mom and Dad, do you know what's wrong with you? <laughs> and then they would give us a little talk about it. Dad, do you know what's wrong with you? I really liked that, just that they were bold enough to feel free that they could tell us that. Uh, maybe they knew I was occupied driving and I wouldn't bother them and that they would use me in their captured audience. Uh, if we don't think about all of these things, and then the, what I want to add to that is that this requires we language, not I language. Personal piety of evangelicals, I'm speaking broadly, not every single one, but this was my life and I've lived in the evangelical world all my life, is what should I do? What can I do? What would God have me do? How can I be responsible? What should, I, should I be an evangelist? Should I do this? Should I go into this? How can I do it? Lord, help me. We read the Bible personally and piously. We read it devotionally. What can I learn from this passage? Uh, and while I would not suggest people quit doing that, I would say we ought to read and hear the Bible more often uh, with the we language, because most of it is addressed to we. Uh, Israel is almost always the addressee of God. Uh, when the prophets are speaking, they're often delivering a message from God to a king or to somebody, but it's in relationship to their office, in relationship to the people. 
Paul's letters, uh, almost without exception, I never did a word study or anything, but they're addressed to a congregation in Galatia, the Romans, and he's addressing them. He's talking about as part of the body of Christ, the people of God, the household of faith. These were letters addressed to a congregation which as a community was to live and learn to live before the face of God in all honesty and in all keeping of troth with God who had come to covenant with us. Uh, but then that goes on, and I'm going to address this uh, uh, briefly tomorrow in chapel, but it goes on, what the implications are, that there are all kinds of facets of what it means for us to be us, to be people, to be we. The we of me and my wife, you might say the simplest and most intimate uh, of individual relationships, although some friendships are very, very close. Uh, even there, uh, I would find myself, and I think I learned this growing up, I've never done a study of this, but I'm praying, Lord, help me be a good husband. And she's praying, Lord, help her be a good wife. And we need to do more praying together, Lord, help us shape this good marriage. The marriage is ours. It's not something that she does and I do. We do. And it has to get more of that we-ness in there. It doesn't dissolve the individuals. It wouldn't be but for them, but they are now in an office of marriage. They, they have added to their relationship. Same with family. The we comes in. Not, well, what shall I do as the father of this uh, rebel-rousing <laughs> group here? The we. But it goes beyond that. Look at Covenant College. I mean, this is a small, very intimate, personal, pious we. But man, what a complex institution. You have to have administrators of various kinds. You have to have people teaching many disciplines. Why? Because that's how complicated the world is. The world is chemical and physical and biotic and economic, and there's institutions that have to be looked at from business to government to on and on and on. How could you do a proper study to prepare young people to go out with the knowledge of God into a world you didn't study that? Imagine all you did was pray and study the Bible and learn something about how to be good church people. That wouldn't prepare for life in the world. So then you'd be saying, well, God isn't really much interested in the world. He's only interested in our Sunday piety. Well, thankfully, most evangelicals are beyond that. But it still comes back to the question, how do we think then about we in our congregations? We at a covenant college. And then we in a business enterprise, when we are all of the people, Christians and non-Christians together, who are occupied building cars. Or we as chemists or physicists who are at the meeting of National Physics Association, whatever it would be, and we're arguing about the meaning of this or that in, in uh, physical theory, uh, physics or theoretical physics or something else. Uh, who are we as communal students? Who are we as artists? Not just encouraging the individual Christian to go be uh, an artist and uh, enjoy it. Uh, they are part of us. Uh, I need to think myself, and, and uh, I've worked at this, I've worked at it with students and family. Uh, I'm not an artist. I'm not a scientist. I can list and take a long list to tell you all the things I'm not. But in the body of Christ, and as part of the meaning of the humanity and its generations, it's to see that, indeed, with fellow humans, 
I am part. We are part of this great generational cause that God has given. And to allow that most of it's mystery to us, to be, become comfortable with mystery. We, we won't begin to fathom the meaning of the universe, physically, chemically, or any other way. We're, we're explorers. We're not going to begin to fathom, no matter how much you study, because most of it isn't done through study. It's done through living into marriage and family. We're not going to fathom the, the scope of all that that means. But to think like that, to begin to see that that institutional fabric is part of what has to be built. And if things are really bad, they're broken, they're corrupted, the banking system doesn't work, uh, this isn't good, look at the people that are being crushed, that don't have jobs, uh, the poor, look at the rich that are getting richer. I mean, these aren't new things. This has been the history of the world. But in a country that prides itself on, uh, you know, the middle class and rising prosperity, that's not where we are today. And that's why a lot of people are mad, but most of them are mad and angry because of disappointed expectations of what they were taught to dream for. It comes back to the mirage that uh, Kuiper was talking about. People have been led down a lot of paths by mirages. And we haven't been there to say, that's a mirage, don't do that. We say, well, that might work pretty good for you, for life in this world. Uh, and then, oh, I want to tell you about Jesus. No, it's not going to work like that. <clears throat> Uh, a couple more things. In political life, which uh, I'm glad that after my philosophical and other studies, I came to it relatively ignorant of politics. I had no interest in politics until I'd gone to the Netherlands and looked back uh, through the eyes of these Europeans at my college and seminary years from 62 to 69, the rise of the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights era. And I thought, you know, I really don't know. I've been trying to figure out philosophically how I'm going to look at life as a Christian. And all of this is going by me. I, I was in no position to fathom any of it. I wouldn't have had a clue how to do that. Uh, so then I realized, because I really wanted to help students get a Christian world and life view. And I thought I would picture myself in dialogue and conversation with them. And a student would ask, well, OK, what's this got to do with politics? And I would say everything. And they would say, like what? And I would say, uh, well, I don't know. So that would be a very short course. Introduction to, to politics, it would last about an hour, 15 minutes, 10. Uh, so I'm thankful I came, as I look back on it, uh, you're never thankful for ignorance, but I came with all of the questions and the kind of framework that Kuiper, however, uh, had helped me gain, and a lot of experience, but I hadn't digested it. And then to begin looking at political life, and all these things just stood out at me. How in the world? if we're thinking about political life in such terms, could we have this very odd thing in American public life, and it's relatively odd, uh, unusual compared to most countries, where we love America, but we fight over what America ought to be. We love the nation, but we don't think much of government. Uh, Ronald Reagan ran. Uh, one of his themes was, get, I'll get government off your backs to save the nation. Uh, it's a rampant theme with Trump. He's out without, um, I'm not lambasting him as only. I'm not a Democrat lambasting him. I'm a Kuyperian uh, lambasting uh, him at this point that uh, uh, without much explanation, given who he's appointed and where he is, he's out to basically ruin and take, destroy many institutions that exist, if he can. Oh, 
we're going to pay less than the United Nations. We're going to pay less than the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. EU, let them sink. Uh, it's, it's really quite amazing. These are institutions, however uh, adequate or inadequate, uh, the World Bank and Nation International Monetary Fund uh, start their meetings in early April. I think it's every twice, two years they meet. These are the institutions that were built after World War II against the backdrop of the, of, uh, the disaster of what that represented, finally beginning to build uh, what became the EU and the United Nations and these inadequacies. But if it was clear to anybody and many people in the world, we can't go through two more world wars. There has to be a way we bring nations together to talk, to interact, to build things. So we can be, because there's one world. And it's clearer than ever before that it still shrinks. And people are still more interconnected. And there are more of them, and on and on and on. To just say, America's going to be free and great and sovereign again, imagine that you can achieve that by shucking off these things. The US wouldn't be in any position had it not been where it is, having helped to build those institutions and led in them. So I'm only saying this is not just brash young people to say, I'm not going to church anymore. Or I'm satisfied just to tweet. I'm, I'm satisfied to live with whatever I learned from my fellow tweeters. Uh, this, is, this is ignorance at the highest level. This is brashness at the highest level. It's, it's quite a phenomenon. Uh, my son and I commiserate over the phone a lot about these kind of things. But I'm only picking that uh, not narrowly to pick on him, though there's all kinds of things. It's, it's not narrowly him. How, how's he get there? But he's, he's elected. There, there are a lot of people. So what is it about that segment of American people and many others that are so fed up with whatever was in Washington, who did not trust Hillary, who were happy to say, get in there and kick butt? I mean, it, it was that kind of attitude many had. What is it? Well, a lot of it has to do with dying expectations, having to do with the American dream is failing. Uh, it's not what we want, but we still want what we want. So bring in the magicians. If the experts can't do it, bring in the magicians and go to it. Well, uh, if that's the framework with which we are, then I would say never before has a generation of young people in college needed more to hear that we have to take a long perspective that goes back to the Garden of Eden, to the covenants with Israel, to the covenants that unfolded until finally the Messiah in the darkness and confusion comes. And through the humility of showing what it means to be a human being uh, and in giving up his life, which indeed becomes the propitiation for our sins, and God raises him from the dead becomes the one who will indeed bring all things together. But what he's going to bring together uh, is going to be the gold out of all the crap. And that's the thing that if we basically give an inclination to our students, to our young people, to our children, to our grandchildren, uh, get along as best as you can, hold on to Jesus. Uh, get a little, good job if you can to hold on to the chief things just to get through, just to get by. And man, if you have a chance, to grab uh, the big wheel, the big star, and make a buck, okay. Uh, if we do that, we're utterly failing uh, them, and we're failing in our service to God. Uh, it could well be that our own efforts, our own time of struggle, uh, will lead to nothing from our measured point of view. I always like to go to the end of Hebrews uh, with an with uh, the list that stops at, that goes on after the fa the famous ones are listed. 
the Moses and Abraham and, and the others. They have no names. They're no names. They're the ones who administered justice, who got eaten by lions, who were cut in two, who were chained. These are people that live by faith. And not one of them, the great faithful that we knew and the ones without names, none of them received a reward. That's the way the, the passage ends. God had a better plan, but they're all going to receive it together. Now, just imagine that. We think we have patience if we can get by for a few years or a decade putting up with something. I mean, this is the patience that requires an understanding of through the whole of history and God's dealing covenantally with a whole bunch of people that always have given him trouble from the beginning. Moses got worn out by it. Read Psalm 90, one of the great psalms, uh, Song of Moses. Uh, through all of that long history, for all of the faithful, from all generations, you think from, it goes right from the beginning, uh, Hebrews 11, by faith, creation, we believe things are created with Abraham and on. None of them received their reward. The unfolding of the generations is like a long time. Be faithful in our part. Be faithful where we are. You don't know what God will do. And if you are faithful and losing your head, that's good. Well, it's not good you lost your head, but it's good that you're faithful. But, you know, look at, uh, I like to think of Joseph and uh, Daniel, kind of the bookends of Israel's history. Both end up getting in slavery. Both of them are utterly powerless. One becomes prime minister of Egypt and the other prime minister of Babylon. What irony for God to bless those nations, as was promised to Abraham through your seed, the nations will be blessed, etc. <clears throat> but if we get, can get that in the kids' minds, it's not just particular elements of the biblical story, but this sense of the flow, the unfolding of the story, and then to get through that God is catching us up in his story. That's who we are. It's not we who have to keep praying that God will help meet my need right now. Oh, Lord, please help me. I'm bad. I need to pass this test. I need to get an A. And you, go, you know all the things that, that very pious people do. Uh, help me understand this passage right now. Lord, my heart breaks. I just had somebody that was hurt, this and that. We live in a very small world. We allow ourselves to remain in a small world, which is why we don't come up with much of the, the Bible. We just want to know those bits of the Bible that we can hang on to that we need in a time of need, that meet us. And again, I'm not discounting the importance of the pious, personal, pleading, thanking uh, uh, prayers of God, of people with God. But what they ought to be seeing, which also helps to give patience, endurance, long-suffering, Paul's admonitions, but it also has to do with how we are discerning uh, and learning to distinguish good from evil, which Paul repeats at several intervals at the end of his letters, and it's key in Hebrews 5 and 6 that I want to touch on tomorrow in my, my chapel talk. Uh, if we get that, then it's not that you become mindless. You don't become a stoic at pain. You weep with those who weep, heartbrokenly. But you rejoice with those who rejoice, and in all of it you say the rejoicing now doesn't, add, doesn't come close to what it's going to be. And the weeping, God has been weeping longer than we could imagine weeping at us in our disobedience. Weeping over Jerusalem, Jesus. Weeping over Israel. Uh, how in the world is that mystery of God's love in creating, allowing these human beings to have such responsibilities that they can do the place in, that they can ruin the garden, that they can ruin one another? How in the world does God in, relate to that? I don't know. 
That's mystery. But to see that that great flow of the story, and we are now in, ever since Christ was here and raised, we are in the culminating age. We're in the culminating time. Uh, it's not the end time because the end hasn't come. Uh, what the Messiah is going to do is going to, has begun, but he hasn't finished. All that the Messiah is going to do to bring the whole earth to uh, uh, justice has not yet finished. So we're in the time, between the time, still anticipating. But instead of it being an anticipation that, well, I have to keep up with my earthly work and it doesn't leave necessarily, well, I hope to get a raise, I hope I can retire with some equity and so forth, and these just kind of kept in, a, in an earthly box. And then we hope for, for Jesus. It belittles Jesus to put him in such a small box, and it doesn't give vitality to life. We need to convey that to one another and to our kids, and they need to see us trying to work and live like that, that we can live with that and with hope. And that's why your studies matter. That's why that work uh, at the plant matters. This is why you're doing your law work. It ought not just be to make a buck and to try to get through. You need to find a way to do justice where there's no justice. You need to find a way how to critique the law which is unjust, et cetera, et cetera. You, you know the story. Well, <clears throat> now I'm preaching, so I, that means I really got to stop. <clears throat> Uh, what questions do you have? What do you want to discuss? I didn't give you much time, but I'm happy to take as much time as you want to take. I got one for you, Jim. So uh, I read last year um, Matthew Crawford's latest book, um, The World Beyond Your Head on Becoming an oh, yeah. Individual and Age. I didn't read it, but I know of it. Yeah, uh, I think it's a really great book. Um, he's an intellectual historian, very critical of Locke. so much intellectual delusion here and a slap there and you know uh, <laughs> a, a metaphor here. Uh, Locke is one of those very significant figures that has to be studied in the context of his time. You know, for a long time historians are trying to figure out whether Calvin was at the beginning of modernity or the end of the Middle Ages. Well, he doesn't fit the categories, but that's where he is. So how do you make sense of it? Uh, Locke is at the end of the time, near the end of the time, when everything had to have a biblical justification, the church was still looked to as the leading authority. Uh, the religious wars had meant that it, uh, and the end of, the, of Christendom had come to the point where uh, all of that was not fully trustworthy anymore. Uh, it's a little bit like any time where you're going through great crisis, the categories of the past really shape what you're even rebelling against. You don't have things to rebel against unless it's these categories so they shape the context. At the same time, you're trying to get somewhere. And I, I, I think Doiver's analysis of Locke and a number of these others is just so profound because he goes down to the religious roots of what's going on as well as the analysis. I think what, and Locke was becoming what you might say in some respects he's the father of liberal theology. He's trying to find a way, which Grotius was doing too in that time, uh, 
How do we find a way for humans to have something in common that can unite a society? Because it's clear the church doesn't anymore, and, uh, or the churches, and, but it still had leadership in England, but not everybody, could, there wasn't a common dogma, and you had to get them together. So they were at the phase of trying to get the lowest common denominator, which you could, on the one hand, still have a good bit of reasonable Christianity, Meaning, what is it that every reasonable person could accept? Well, at least we'll let God do this. God will have this place. Uh, and then we can lay claim to God and have some basis. But all you have to do is go to uh, Locke's second treatise on government and read it. He, he has a retelling of the creation story. It's a Lockean story, the, <laughs> the creation. Uh, human beings were created to, have, uh, uh, to fill the earth. And they had everything in common. Boy, sounds good as a starter. But the earth had to be developed by people going out and mixing their labor. I'm jumping ahead a few pages in the block, but you should read it just to see a contrasting creation story. Uh, we, we went out and mixed, as he put it, mixed our labor with things. Once we mixed our labors, picking apples from the tree or planting something or raising an animal, <clears throat> that becomes ours. We are now. It's part of us. That's property, that's self. And that then is not somebody else's. So then he's concerned with what is morally legitimate of what you can uh, take from your labors that denies somebody else something. Well, it would be immoral to take something that spoils. You pick apples, you better not pick a whole bunch of them so you can hog the apples and then they rot in your cellar. Uh, all, I mean, you think these are funny things, but it, this was the way he was thinking very morally. He was trying to think about responsibility, but it was individuals. And so not everything about Locke is individualistic. But then when it comes to how, and of course Hobbes is in the backdrop of this, and Hobbes, uh, you know, the whole individualism of the war of all against all has to stop by, uh, you know, a behemoth who's going to uh, <clears throat> come and order all things. Locke wants, or Locke's a tolerant person. He doesn't want to be a Hobbesian, <laughs> but uh, for Locke, uh, the way you can understand then how people do common things is by contract. Everything's a contract. Uh, and therefore, society becomes a contract, and out of the social contract, you contract to have government. Well, that means the roots of all things are back in human autonomy which is about, I mean, that's as modern as you can get. And that's really kind of where Locke unfolds to. That's the impetus of his work. But it's, it's heavy with uh, theology. It's heavy with all kinds of things. I remember I studied with John Hollowell at Duke, a well-known uh, Christian political theorist at Duke when I was there. And I remember in modern political thought, uh, of course, uh, this was the second one in the series of the political history of political thought that I was taking. And the very first day, he was have, talking, lecturing on Hobbes, and this kid raised his hand. He said, I thought this was a political science class. Professor Hollowell said, well, it's a political theory class. Well, what are you bringing all this religion in? <laughs> Hollowell's just dumbfounded. He said, I'm not. He said, Hobbes brought it all in. This is Hobbes. Hobbes bringing it. The kid had grown up. Somebody taught him politics. This has nothing to do with religion. And now we're studying political science. I mean, that's the kind of ignorance that, but then you go back, you see they're struggling with this whole question of religious wars, et cetera. So 
yes, you should not see Locke as a, I would try to say to students, uh, we need to study and understand the influence. Part of the good thing, I, I don't want, this could go on and on, I don't want to do that, I'd like to get some other people, but uh, in, uh, let me put it this way. Doivert pointed out, he's not the only one, but pointed out that if you want to understand the emergence of uh, a complex society with unlimited government, that is where government begins to be seen as under law, and the diversification of, and he was a legal theorist, Doivert was, how the different meanings of law come to, to apply. You have a public law, which is what the government is doing and mandating. You have the laws that basically have the different spheres of society, that families do things in their families, and that, sh that needs to be recognized. But you also have this uh, 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 kind of, uh, it's uh, individual private law, or it's private law that is backed by government maintenance of it. And that's where, for example, to say, uh, in a family, back at the point where, uh, let's say, in the 19th century up until whatever it was in the West, uh, women basically had no property rights, no right, uh, no bank accounts. They, they were not persons outside either the father or the husband who was the person in whom they had identity. Okay, when we finally come to recognize as persons, they are not exhausted in their relationship as married partner or child, which we take for granted with men back then. That is, I'm not exhausted in what I am as somebody who is a son of my parents, a husband of my wife. They're always there. It's not as if you, you uh, box them into a corner in which you step outside and you say, well, I'm here at the university now. My wife's so far away. Uh, who would like to give me a date tonight? You know, uh, it's, the marriage is, covers all the ground but it doesn't exhaust the identity of, of the person. Now, how do you get in law where people who don't, it's not internal sphere sovereignty law, it's not the law of the state that governs every citizen. Well, it's all those relationships and identities, which is the basis of civil rights, the basics of civil rights for the recognition of persons, but also their freedom to contract and do other things. Okay, what I think, uh, this would be my interpretation. John Locke builds on that civil private law idea. That is, here's where individuals recognized in their full identity as a person, not subject to the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, aristocrats, not subject to the church, etc. that identity. And he takes that as the starting place of society. Now, if you study history, Darwin said you can't get to that point of having private civil law until you've built the kind of order that begins to recognize private civil law. It's something that's recognized only with the differentiation of society and the coming limitation, the recognition of the state and sphere sovereignty. It isn't the beginning of anything. There weren't just first free individuals who were bound by nothing, and then they said, oh, let's have a club, or let's contract together to do such and such. So, but mentally, and I think that's the way we're taught uh, in a liberal historical tradition. The origin is individuals who then contract with one another to create society. It's historically backwards. It has no uh, ontological grounding. It's an impossibility. But if you say, hey, what really mattered, and you think of progress moving from uh, uh, 
hierarchical uh, determinism of churches and emperors and aristocrats to freedom, and that's the real goal of society, well then that's where we need to be and then we have to build everything else. Well then you have to go back and you have to rebuild society based on human autonomy. It ends up, uh, it ends up ultimately as a mirage because the very, it, it's sawing off the limb you stand on again and again. You can't do that if you don't have a government that protects the right of privacy, etc. So I think in that sense, Locke is very, very significant to understand, and there are elements in what he's building on that need to be preserved. I mean, a liberal society compared to a totalitarian society, that's kind of the way we talk, is really good. But what is it that's the good in the liberal society? It's not the individualism that ends up um, uh, in a dead end. Well, sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying this so you don't think I'm offended when I leave. <laughs> I'm supposed to leave at five. Um, but I want to ask this question because it's, it's been really helpful. So know why I leave after this. Um, I am basically by what we're saying here. I'm a big fan of Kuiper. Uh, but you mentioned Karl Barth, and it just made me think. So in, in church dogmatics, for example, uh, Barth thinks, and I, I would actually mostly agree with this assessment, Bobbing is a better theologian than Kuiper, but he makes a passing comment about Kuiper that's painful to read, and and it makes me wonder at moments like this, um, in light of our political climate right now, where he he uses the word naive. Use the word naive, yeah. and he says basically Kuiper is naive, and that his approach doesn't have the resources either to prevent what's happened in Germany. And I think that's a very interesting, because Bart is so Christocentric, and he's worried. Now, I think Bart collapses natural theology and natural revelation, but I was just curious what you would think in terms of that potential concern about, is this Kuyperian approach, something like Bart in light of, in light of the historical context, fun and naive, what, what would you say to that? Well, I, uh, if you understand Bart, and what he comes out with is that God is really the God who always comes from the outside. I mean, you know, this is the holy other, etc. And every attempt at natural theology of taking any basis in reason or common tradition will always mean human pretension. And that's basically what it amounts to. We're trying to get that which we can be in control of. Okay, uh, if you take the pretensions and if you take our uh, ignorance at times of what's happening in the society, its dynamics, then whether you call it naivete or clouded thinking or clouded living, then I think that can happen everywhere. I mean, one of the things that you can do with Kuiper, uh, that Kuiper conference 100th anniversary of the Stone Lectures, which was held at Princeton in uh, 1998, uh, uh, there were several people that critiqued his view of women. There were several people that critiqued his view of race. Uh, much of what he said about race, or much of what happened in South Africa, it actually is a violation of Kuiper. Sphere sovereignty had nothing to do with uh, uh, apartheid of cultures. But Kuiper was, because of certain Dutch antagonisms to the liberal tradition, was pro-Germany uh, at many times. He was not pro-Nazi. 
I mean, that, he was dead before that time. But in World War II, there was a, there was a sympathy with the Germans. Uh, huh? Yeah, what, World War I is what I meant, sorry. Uh, glad I didn't say World War IV. Uh, 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 thanks, World War I. Uh, and, the, and that's also related to what Kuiper was very influenced by a, the kind of organic idealism of the 19th century. Organic comes in very often for him. And my critique of his chapter on politics in uh, the lectures on Calvinism is uh, he starts out with, you know, the human community organically would have unfolded. And he quotes Aristotle even, we're social creatures. But he is an Aristotelian as well. He goes on to imagine that had it not been for sin, it would be one organic community, basically a family. That's kind of what he's describing. It's familial. It's not political at all. But because of sin, then God brings, and this is Augustinian, a kind of mechanical, you have to have a way to, to hold that in. Uh, in fact, the way Kuiper went at political life was not very much like that. The image of the cogs and the wheels and so forth, he was going at it with a real sense of responsibility. The government should be doing good and building a commonness, et cetera, et cetera. There are all kinds of weaknesses in Kuiper, and you could say that um, uh, Doiver is criticized even more, and I think it's a false criticism, that he kind of took the, the structure of a society of, of Holland at the time that he was writing, and that became kind of the norm. And that's this fixation of the pillarization and all the rest. I think you have to read Kuiper and Doiver both more normatively. They're trying to get at normativity for the development of institutions. I don't read anywhere in Doiverd that the kind of family that he had or the kind of state that Holland was is the kind, the ideal. You know, a mixed monarchy and so forth. It was nothing like that. Uh, in fact, I think you can go through, and I, it's even more emphatic with me, I think the question of government, it's why I don't like the word sphere sovereignty anymore. I prefer spheres of responsibility. Sovereignty implies that here's a sphere that's kind of closed off and there's a sovereign. And of course it gets to who's an authority. Well, the dad in the home and you know, the, the uh, priest at church and so forth. I don't think that's really what it was about. Uh, there was, uh, that was, you could say, you could take some of that for granted in Kuiper at certain points. Doiverd's after a norm of justice for uh, Rechstadt. He wanted to get at the, the law state. We'd say rule of law state. And, uh, I, what I want to emphasize is the task of government is doing justice in the context, and it's why I think international governance is increasingly called for, has to be the right kind, not talking about world government, talking about all kinds of federalism. There are callings to do justice the states individually are not going to do, and even the international organizations. Anyway, it's all to say that to speak of naivete, I mean, my reading through of, of, Kuiper, of uh, Bart in this recent venture I've been on, uh, and there's only a little bit. I mean, you get exhausted reading Bart, I think. Uh, he just goes on and on and on. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that he, in order to keep going with his system, he has to ignore most of reality. It, he, he just can't come to grips with the reality of what it means to live in this world because it's always that which is over against what it means to follow the faith. I, I'm, I'm being too harsh on him, perhaps, but uh, naive, I, given Kuiper in his day, I would think he's far from naive. Uh, were there things that he didn't anticipate coming in his day and age? 
I'm sure he did. And you know, the way he criticized uh, the burning of Servetus uh, in uh, those lectures, uh, uh, Calvin wasn't the originator of that. This was a practice, you know, the, the, of, that was gray with age. It was so old. And it was something that uh, we have to take distance from in the spirit of separate from Anna. So I think he would say it about himself. That's very clear in Doiverd. There's nothing about what he's doing that can be kind of absolutized as finished philosophy. We need to get on with the work of critical thinking, the act of the roots, et cetera. So I, I think, uh, I don't, where was that that he quotes Kuiper? It's in the dogmatic. Yeah, well, you don't know where, yeah, okay. I've been reading mainly the stuff on creation, but. Anyway, thanks for the question. Yeah, I hope I wasn't too naive in the way I answered it. No, it's great. I'm just curious. And the reality is it's just um, part dealing with a time when the German church blended itself together with the political system. Well, and, and that's gray with age, too. Right. And see, Bart, I think, was too optimistic. It's a lot of what you get in various people who become very antagonistic to the system is that they were kind of uh, wedded to it for a while. They had hopes of it. They were very German or very this or very that, as many Americans are, as many of us are. This is a great system. This is a great model for the world. Oh, beware. Right, and that's what the concern is when you have, when you get something similar, and this is too easy, but the Christian right, their optimism about we're going to Christianize, we're going to do all of this, I, that's, that's the kind of naivety you talk about. Well, yeah, and I don't think that was uh, the spirit of Kuiper, right. but uh, I, my concern with Old American, when you get into that stuff, it's American civil religion. I don't think it's Christianity, even if it's Christians embodying it. I think Jim has a few minutes to hang around before uh, we go. We should thank our guests. For yes.